one of the pastors uh, here uh, at New Life Press, and we are continuing along in our series in the book of Nehemiah. So if I could ask everyone to please stand for the reading of God's Word. It's a fairly lengthy passage, Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 to 12, but please give your undivided and reverent attention to the reading of His Word. Nehemiah 8, 1 through 12, starting with verse 1. <clears throat> and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So, Israel, so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, and Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshalam. On his left hand, and Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all that people answered him, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed down, they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Jephthai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites. Help the people to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, The day, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing Ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And this is God's word for us. Please take your seats. <clears throat> so if you've been with us, you've been looking at the story of Nehemiah, and one of the central themes we've seen in this book is how God is bringing a people back to himself. And they're rebuilding a temple and a temple wall, which is really just a place of worship, because at the heart of it, it's about rebuilding and restoring a people back to himself. And we've looked for the first seven chapters about how Nehemiah is an extraordinary man, and he's multi-gifted, and he's multi-spirited and multifaceted in the sense of his personality, his relationships, his background, his experiences, and he's the right man for the job. But we began to see a pivot in chapter 7 last week, where at the end of the day, it's not about rebuilding the walls, it's about rebuilding the people. Because after the walls come the citizens. It's the people that come refreshed, rejuvenated, spiritually vital, transformed, restored, rebuilt, sanctified, justified, all these things that come to us today in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And when you look at this, chapter 8, you'll see that there are a couple of several, or several distinctive markers about Christians and the people of God, things that we all know if you're growing up in the church. One we read here in chapter 8, we worship. Now, it shows us that we're different from the world because every Sunday we worship. 
we come together and we sing songs and we gather together to worship God. The second thing that marks us as a little bit different is that we should love to hear the Word of God. Everywhere here, they asked to hear the book of the Law of Moses, and they understood it, they prayed about it, they repented from it, so they want to learn about the Word of God. But if there's one quality that we'll focus on here today, one sort of characteristic, this sort of abstract quality about people that marks Christians as being really different from the rest of the world, not to say that we're better in this sort of triumphalistic perspective, but to say Christians are a little bit different. They're a different flavor. What we see in this passage is that that one flavor is joy. If there's one quality that marks a Christian, in contrast to everywhere else in the world and every sort of philosophical system and worldview that says Christianity in Jesus gives you something the world can't give you, that says you're a little bit different, it's joy of the Lord. And that's what I want to look at here today. This joy that, especially as Elder Andy has prayed, has been so elusive that in this broken world, in this world of frustration, world of brokenness, heartache, sin, injustice, things we see in this world, one of the most elusive experiences and emotions I would argue that we've struggled with in the past 18 months is going to be joy. And that's a challenge because if I'm saying that's one of the most important marks of a Christian, but also one of the most elusive, then we've got a problem on our hands. And I think the passage will speak into this. So we'll consider three aspects about Christian joy. First, we'll look at what is Christian joy? Not just joy in general, not happiness, but what is Christian joy? Secondly, where do we get this joy? How do we cultivate it? How do we develop it within our lives? And then thirdly, once we have it, what are you supposed to do with it? Or how does it express itself? So what is Christian joy? Where do we get it? And then lastly, what do we do with it? So let's look at this together. First of all, What is Christian joy? Well, after rebuilding the wall, they have a worship service, as I've said, and it's a revival service of some sort in chapter 8. Towards the end of the service, Nehemiah and the Levites, who sort of teach the law of God, they go in verse 10, it says, Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So it's already remarkable if you think about it. I know that if you've grown up in the church, you're familiar with this phrase. But joy of the Lord is your strength is actually a really strong statement because it's equating strength with joy. It says there, right there, joy of the Lord is strength. So do you want to be strong? Do you want to be steadfast? In other words, it's saying, if you want to suffer well in the midst of all the chaos and hardship and brokenness of this world, do you know what you need to get through the difficulties of life? It's not going to be more money, not more power, not more connections. It's joy. Because it says the joy of the Lord is strength. It doesn't say the joy of the Lord is a result of strength. Joy of the Lord can lead to strength. It's an equivocation. Joy of the Lord is strength. So it tells us right away. Christian joy is different because this joy is what's going to help you to suffer, to get through. So wouldn't you want that kind of strength? Wouldn't you want that kind of joy? Well, this is what we'll look at. It comes towards the end of the conclusion in verse 10. At the end of the sermon, the end of the worship service, it basically says, you want to be strengthened, you need joy of the Lord. That's how we're supposed to walk in worship. That's what we get out of worship, that we're a joyful people, a happy people. Now, it seems to characterize the people of God, especially in verses 9 to 12, because they're eating, they're rejoicing, and they start evangelizing, and they share their goods and services with people who are not part of their community. In other words, they're great at mercy. All that ministry, all that, all that um, spiritual thriving was catapulted by joy. John Stott, 
in his commentary on the book of Romans, talking about chapter 5, where they deal with justification, says that it seems clear from this paragraph that the main mark of justified believers is joy. He's getting this from the book of Romans. And that phrase, joy of the Lord, do you know what it tells us? It's a description of a certain type of joy that's very different from the world. See, worldly joy won't give you strength. Worldly joy would actually lead to depression and it'll cause you to break. Christian joy will lead to strength. And here's the difference. R.C. Sproul alluded to this in an article he wrote. He says, in one sense, Christian joy is different from worldly happiness. Worldly happiness is something that Charles Schultz, who was the creator and author of the Peanuts comic strip, Charlie Brown and the Gang, he coined the adage, happiness is a warm puppy. And it captures really the sentimentality of worldly happiness, that is fleeting, it's emotional, it just warms the heart. It's something that's real, but it's temporary, and it won't give you strength because it'll disappear in a blink of an eye. It's warm and fuzzy. It's an idea that's ethereal. It's not something that could last forever. And that's very different from what Christian joy is. What the world calls happiness is going to lead to weakness. What Christ calls joy will lead to strength. Paul Tripp's he defines joy in this way. Joy is an inner peace and rest based on what you know to be true, resulting in a life of thankfulness and expectancy. See, the biggest difference between worldly joy that will, worldly happiness that will lead to weakness and Christian joy that will lead to strength is that worldly happiness is all tethered and grounded in your circumstances. You know, if your love life is doing well, your career life is doing well, your children are listening, your parents are letting you do what you want, circumstances of your life are good, then you get Christian happiness. But that's actually weakness because your circumstances change all the time. The reason that Christian joy is so strong is the joy of the Lord is strength is because it's not based on your circumstances, but on a permanent relationship of God's love for you. So when you know that you're identified and you have a value and you've been forgiven and you're, and you're steadfast in the in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God loves you through and through. That means you have a joy that can be taken away because it's guaranteed in the gospel internally. One way to think about it is that worldly happiness is about the external circumstances. Christian joy is about the internal spiritual realities. External circumstances could disappear any moment. No, God forbid, but a tragedy could happen. You could take your kids away. You could lose your job. You could find out that you have a sickness. All the things that you find joy in can be taken away, but if you know that Christian joy is tethered inside, spiritually given to you in the gospel, it can never be taken away. That's why it leads to strength. In the midst of a hurricane, you could have a level of Christian joy. It's not temporary pleasure in circumstances, but rejoicing your identity in Jesus. It's not so much happiness in circumstances, but contentment in Jesus, who is the Lord of your circumstances. See, Christian joy is so funny, you think that you can't actually get it. You say, where is that it's so elusive? But what's funny about Christianity is that a passage like Philippians 4.4, Paul commands Christians to rejoice. So it is an emotion, but there's something that we have a stewardship with that we could cultivate this. It says rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. There's a command which tells us when we're not joyful, we're actually in sin. And that's a really hard struggle for us to deal with. See, what you have to realize is this. As I continue this point, is that everybody wants happiness and joy. Everyone was created for it. Humans, by nature, live for joy. Actually, to even live 
for a proper joy or to live life that's thriving, you need some sort of center, some sort of resource or foundation to give you everlasting joy because in some sense, the whole goal of life is for us to be happy and to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. But we have to find the center and the foundation of that joy. So the question is this, friends. Not whether or not you want to be joyful, because if you're honest, you want to be joyful. The question is, what kind of joy are you getting? Christian joy, worldly happiness, and where do you get it from? That's what we're trying to figure this out, because this is the key. One way, worldly happiness, will either lead to disappointment and despair, or it'll lead you to be a little bit less human. That's the only alternatives from what Nehemiah offers us as joy of the Lord. If you don't find joy in Christ, what the Bible is telling you is that you have only one other way to approach life, and those ways will either lead to despair, depression, disappointment, or it'll lead you to be a stoic, to repress your emotions, and you'll be a little bit less than human. Well, what do I mean by this? If the ultimate source of your joy is in the things of this world, your circumstances, then on the one hand, you'll always be heartbroken because your circumstances will change, or you'll be disappointed because they can't live up to the hype. Or the other way is that you'll become less human because you'll be cold-hearted, you'll be detached, less loving, less empathetic, and you'll be less than human. Because in the first way, if you attach your joy to circumstances, you'll always get disappointed and discouraged. You know that's the case, isn't it? Now, when you first meet the love of your life, there's a certain joy, there's butterflies in your stomach, and after a while, after you get married, then you realize there can be a deeper love, but that's a different sermon. But the initial joy that you found when you first met your love of your life is not the same after 10 years of grinding out difficulties of sin and giving forgiveness in marriage. That's why they always say that marriage really will sanctify you, it'll change you. That's the truth of everything. You can have a promotion at work, and then you're elated. You feel great, and then you go to work, and all this other stress comes on top of you because joys are temporary if those happiness are grounded in your circumstances. It'll lead to disappointment. It'll lead to a certain heartache. That's because people change, circumstances change, life changes. And this is an example of like how you and I oftentimes try to find our permanent joy but in, Christian, but in worldly happiness and temporary things. We spend more time than we should chasing the temporary highs of that we think purchasing and possessing materialism gives us. We eat more than we should, craving the short shelf life of the mental and physical buzz that food gives us. Now, this list, by the way, is from Paul Tripp. He says, we entertain ourselves too much, hoping that the numbing joy of fantasy worlds will help us cope with the real world we live in. We work too much, hoping that achievement will make us feel good about ourselves and our lives. We depend on people too much, searching for an inner sense of self and well-being with somebody's approval in a relationship. But if this is true, that all those things we all search for, but they all disappoint because if you've placed your life on any of those realities... It'll change, it's temporary and it's light, and then you'll become disappointed and devastated. The, other, only, the only other approach is if you become some sort of contemporary monk. Detach yourself, become a stoic, and say, well, I'm not going to find my joy in anything in this world. I'm just going to cut off my emotions, and I'm not going to feel any joy. But then you know what? That's not even possible, but it also makes you less compassionate, less loving, and it makes you less than human. See, some of you may be thinking, I don't want to think about God. I don't want to think about sin or people, or money, power, and careers. If I don't think about or care about any of those things or care about people's approval of me, then I'll never be hurt, and I'll never be disappointed. But that way doesn't work either because you're not created that way. And as I've said, you won't be 
living in the way that God created you to be fully the image of God. Sometimes being a stoic and saying, okay, I'm not going to care about anything works for a little bit, but the problem is, is that you become depressed and less happy as well. You're living a life that you're not meant to live. You see, friends, you don't want to invest too much in the materialism of the world because you'll be disappointed. You also don't want to detach yourself from the world because you'll be less human. Because joy, everlasting joy, is not found in your circumstances, as verse 10 says. Do not be grieved, Nehemiah says, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. As Williamson says, the joy of the Lord is where one identifies himself afresh with the community of God's people and the grace of salvation given to him. This is a joy that comes from knowing who Jesus is and who you are because of his grace, what he does and what he says and what he gives you. Everlasting joy is not bound up in the circumstances of our lives, but is bound up in the Lord of circumstances, Jesus Christ. It can never be taken away. It can't change. It's in you. It's inside of you. It's spiritual. It's in the gospel. And so if you have that, the question is, how do you develop it and how do you cultivate it? Well, this comes to our second point. One of the more interesting points that commentators make about this passage is when they had this worship service, the location of the service is very interesting. It tells us where we get this joy, this internal gospel-centered joy, because in verse 1 it says this, And all the people gathered as one man, so they're united, they're unified, they're gathered, they gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. Now commentators differ a little bit, but they all say this to some degree, that the law of God and what was read came to the water gate, which means that it was outside the temple and maybe even outside the city. That means the word of God was already meant for the world and the lost. Do you see that? It would have been different if they just met in the temple and learned about the word of God and kept it to themselves. There's no evangelism, no mercy, no sharing of the gospel. But the place of the worship service already indicates that the joy that we get from the word of God also is something we want to share with the world because the worship service was outside the temple, outside the gates. This is where the law of God was to be read, and it sets the tone for the entire chapter 8. In chapter 6, we saw how Nehemiah dealt with intimidation. In chapter 7, we, this, we saw how Nehemiah displayed his organization. And then in chapter 8, it brings into view Nehemiah's proclamation, the gospel of Jesus. And the location tells us that it was meant for the world. Derek Kidner says this, At the dedication of Solomon's temple... There had been glory and beauty, natural and supernatural, to overwhelm the worshipers. Here the focus, apart from the wooden platform, was a scroll. See, this is a, a unique transition in the history of God's people. Because every point before this, God's people, the Israelites, were more identified with a temple or tabernacle. And now we see this transition that the people of God are now beginning to be identified by the word of God, by a scroll. And for us, it's this Bible that leads and guides and has the pulpit as the center of the worship service. And that's where we get our joy. Yes, it's from Jesus, but how do you get Jesus? Through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ coming from the word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. It, mar it marked a, a transition of some sorts for these people because the exile from which the Israelites were coming back was sort of a spiritual death leading to rebirth in a spiritual life from the scroll where the law of Moses was read and it was creating a new people. See, it's a wonderful picture of the gospel, friends. A thousand years ago, 
Israel was led free from the Egyptians with Moses through the Exodus. They were no longer just a family, but now they were a great nation, and they got the Ten Commandments in Mount Sinai. And now here, we've already looked at this, there's a second exile from Babylon. Israel emerges no longer as just a kingdom, but a little flock with markings of a church. And they were a people of the book, of the Bible. The Word of God was central to their life. The Word of God is what led them to Jesus Christ. And this is how you and I, all of us, if you want this joy of the Lord that gives you strength, you get it from the Word of God. See, throughout the chapter, there's a pattern of reading the law and understanding it, and then joy. Very simple. Read the law, they taught it, you understand it, and then there's joy. Verse 12 shows us this. Let's take a look real quick. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. They had understood it. There's a stress on understanding in the verses I've read. There's the word understanding in verses 2, 3, 7, 8, and 12. So peppered throughout these verses is the Word of God, and it's always about the people understanding it, understanding it. Verse 12 says, they went out and they ate and drank, they showed mercy, they gave their resources, they evangelized, and they were joyful because they had understood the words I would declare to them. To understand the Bible, to understand the message that God has for you, and to contemplate it, meditate upon it, to absorb it, into your heart. Because at the end of the day, there's one simple reason as to why there's such an emphasis on the Word in churches and God's people. It's because in this book here, which we call the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, it's not really about theology and doctrine, even though that's foundational. It's theology and doctrine of a person, and his name is Jesus. The way that we can give you and introduce you to Jesus is by giving you this book and telling you how all the law and the prophets and the poetry point towards this person of Jesus who died for you and rose again for you and was raised for you and now ascends on high and sits on God's right hand for you. And when you know that you get introduced and you get to receive in union with Christ, your personal Savior, through this book, then and only then, you'll get an internal, spiritually transformed joy of the Lord. That's what it's telling you. That's where you get it. Simple question, friends. How are you responding to the Word of God? How often do you read the Bible? It's really simple. It's, it's so simple. Not easy to do, but simple. Are you disgruntled? Are you angry? Are you frustrated in life? The simple question you have to look at yourself is this. Do you read your Bible? When's the last time you read the Bible? Now, many of you maybe open the Bible and there's like dust and you open it up and it makes a noise and you got when all this dust comes out because you haven't opened it up in years. Well, there's no reason, no wonder actually, why you're not really joyful. It's not, that, it's not that hard in terms of the answer. It's pretty simple. Now, the people in Nehemiah 8, in this, in, this, in this worship service, and I'll grant this, it's a very special worship service. It's a revival. It's a very special service. It was a one-moment thing. I don't think this was a typical experience for them. I think this was one of those moments, one of those revivals, one of those renewed commitment to corporate worship, a moment of heartfelt repentance, a sweet moment of joyful community, it wasn't an everyday moment, but it was a moment. And these kind of moments in Nehemiah 8, they may not happen every Sunday, but they can happen by the power of the Spirit and the truth of His Word. And the question for us is to say, how are you listening? How are you understanding? How are you reading the Bible? Now, even as 
the economy begins to open up and the hospitality industry begins to open up. There's a lot of flights that are happening, especially during the holiday season. And I don't know about you, but every time I get onto an airplane and I'm sitting there for the airplane to take off, and you know how it goes, either on the television screen or somebody comes up into the middle of the aisle and they give you the emergency procedures just in case the airplane is about to crash and they tell you how to breathe into the tube to give the life jacket and then how the exit will lead to a, a boat that you could ride upon in case your plane crashes into the river. Do you know what I do every time I see the TV come up with that lesson or somebody, a stewardess goes into the aisle and begins to talk? I put my headphones on, <laughs> and then I just don't pay attention. Isn't it ironic that the most important message on that airplane that will save my life is the moment that I tune out? <laughs> is that how you are at church? most important message that will save your life, you're going to tune out. There's no wonder then if there's no joy in your life. In verse 6, we see the response of the people in this special moment. They lifted their hands, they bowed their heads, and they wept. They worshipped. The Word of God touched their hearts, so they repented and they worshipped. When was the last time we had that response where we wept and we worshipped? When was the last time the Word of God moved you to repentance in that way? Augustine has once said, everywhere a greater joy is preceded by a greater suffering. And it is those who weep because of the gravity of their sin and the hardship of their circumstances that pushes them to rely upon the life-giving grace of Jesus Christ. Those are the people who will experience great mourning and great suffering, but even a greater joy. Because you can't value the greatness of God's love unless you come to the grips with the greatness of your need for that very love. Then and only then, friends, through repentance and the Word of God, reading, worship, Bible study, then you'll get joyful. So if you're angry, you're bitter, you're frustrated, you're short-tempered, <laughs> it's the same lesson from like middle school or elementary school. Last time you, for those of you growing up in the church, when's the last time you read the Bible? <laughs> and if you haven't, then, then you know what you got to do. And this leads us to our third point. Let's say that you actually get this joy. What do you do with this joy once you have it? The quick answer is this. You share it. So we looked at what joy is. Then we looked at where we get it from the Bible and worship. And lastly, once you receive it by grace, what do you do with this? You share it in different ways. You share it once in evangelism, but you also share it because when you share your joy together, then it intensifies that joyful experience. That's why community is so important. You guys know what I'm talking about. This is why all of us, whenever we have a beautiful meal or dessert, what do we want to do? We take a picture of it, post it onto our Instagram. Because when we share it with the world, there's something that intensifies and makes that experience a little bit more, isn't it? Now, it's one thing to rejoice by yourself. It's another thing to rejoice, and the first thing you want to do is to tell people about it, tell people that you love. Look what happened to me. Look what I get to do. Look what I achieved. Look at the school I got into. Guess what? I'm going to get married. I have a boy and a girl for their first kid. All the things that you want to celebrate, what's the first inclination? Got to share this with somebody because it intensifies that joy. So you see here in the passage, they have this joy and they share it with evangelism, but share it together as a community. See, in verse 12, this is what they did to share it. 
It says, And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. And then in verse 10, before that, it says, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone. So they're very merciful and generous. Send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to your Lord. You see, friends, the person who gets it, the person who experiences this joy, really finds it and experiences it. This is the person who begins to share it. Share it with non-believers. Share it with your friends. The word of God doesn't terminate on the, God, on the people of God. It lands on the church before it takes flight again and goes out to the ends of the world in missions and evangelism. That's what you do to share it. You see, friends, it's not just a Christian thing. David Brooks in the New York Times in the op-ed column, he wrote this article about contrasting how happiness and joy is a little bit of a different take, but I think the thrust of it is very similar about the nature of sharing joy. He was talking about when he was speaking at Arizona State University at the commencement, and he was looking at the graduates over in the, in the, in the, on the floor of the field. And then he was contrasting the joy that they felt with all the parents and friends and family up in the stands who have seen their beloved ones graduate, and says there's a difference in that experience. He says the students who are graduating, they're experiencing happiness. But the parents and their friends in the stands, they're experiencing joy. And this is the reason why. There are two kinds of emotion present at that graduation ceremony. For the graduation students, there's happiness. They've achieved something. They've worked hard, and they're moving closer to their goals. There's a different emotion up in the stands among the families and friends. That emotion, David Brooks says, is joy. They're not thinking about themselves. Their delight is seeing the glow on the graduate's face, the laughter in her voice, the progress of his or her journey, the blooming of a whole person. In other words, it was a joy because it was shared. It was other-centered for someone else. Happiness usually involves victory for the self, he writes. Joy tends to involve the transcendence of the self, Happiness comes from accomplishments. Joy comes when your heart is in another. Joy comes after years of changing diapers, driving to practice, worrying at night, dancing in the kitchen, playing in the yard, and just sitting quietly together watching TV. Joy is the present that life gives you when you give all your other gifts away. In other words, what is he saying? Joy is something that you experience and cultivate by sharing it. Exactly what you see the people of God in verses 10 to 12 do. Because he says this, happiness is good, joy is greater. Happiness is what smart people go after, joy is what smarter people go after. And this is because joy is something that's transcendent and can give you a strength in the Lord to get through life that nothing else in this world can give you. See, it's possible that we could get this joy because of the sinless one, who's able to find joy by dying for you and me. Jesus Christ, the one in whom we'll find everlasting joy. Jesus, who could restore the joy that you don't feel here today. Do you feel joyful? Do you feel excited? Are you hopeful for the future? And if you're not, Jesus can come back and restore that joy for you. He could give it to you. Thomas Goodwin has said this, Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased and enlarged by his showing grace Mercy and pardoning, relieving, and comforting his members on earth. Christ came to restore joy to us by giving himself to us. 
I got this insight from Dane Ortland. One of the things that he brought out so brilliantly is this concept that one of the deepest joys of Jesus is to forgive you of your sins. You know, sometimes maybe it's an Asian-based culture. We don't want to reveal our sins. We can't be honest about our heart issues and the things we struggle with, our pettiness. And we feel that even if we go to Jesus with our sins, that we're tiring Jesus out, that we're burdening Jesus, that we feel like Jesus doesn't want to hear once again, oh, no, there's another asking for forgiveness for greed, another asking for forgiveness of lust, another asking forgiveness of gossip, and we feel like Jesus doesn't want to hear this. But what Dane Ortland shows us is that one of the most profound, reassuring truths of the gospel is that Jesus finds so much joy when you come to him with all your baggage and messiness and you lay it before him asking for the gift of grace and the blood of Jesus to cover all that you've committed and thought and done, and that Jesus covers all that. And when Jesus covers all that, it increases Jesus' joy, so to speak. Jesus loves doing this. Jesus doesn't just want us to draw on his grace and mercy only because it vindicates his atoning work so we could be justified, although that's immense and foundational. Jesus wants us to draw on his grace and mercy because it is who he is. Jesus is grace and mercy. He drew near to us in our incarnation so that his joy could be ours and our joy and Jesus' joy can rise and fall together as we turn to Jesus for a hope and identity and forgiveness and as Jesus loves on us and forgives us and covers us with his grace and mercy. In his mercy, in his grace, in our receiving it, our joys, yours and mine, in Jesus Christ, ebb and flow together. That's what he does. Where do you get that from the Bible? Well, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, it says this, Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is about to die, and he's about to suffer the wrath of God's punishment for your sin and mine. But when he saw the electrocution chair on the cross at Calvary, Jesus says it was a joy set before him. Why would it be a joy set before him if he's about to die for the sins of the world? Because he's looking what happens after the cross and resurrection day. Do you know what Jesus sees after the cross? People's sins forgiven. And that was the joy set before Christ in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Your sins forgiven bring Jesus so much joy. And in that turns, he restores our joy in himself. Jesus Christ. The joy of the Lord is our strength because Jesus Christ, in whom we receive joy, is our everlasting strength and happiness. Friends, let's turn to the Lord and pray. Father, we thank you so much because we live in a world that is difficult and broken. And Lord, we thank you that you allow us to feel every emotion, even emotions of heartache and pain, of stress and anxiety, You allow us to feel emotions of mourning and weeping from the tragedies of this world and injustice and the loss of family. And yet, Lord, you give us the hope that we need in the gospel to be a joyful people because that joy will be our strength to get us through. It's not a joy that comes from the circumstances of life, but it comes internally by the spirit-wrought gospel of Jesus Christ in our hearts. We thank you so much, God. We praise you and love you, and we ask all these things in his name. Amen. Thank you.